Liberty lockdown, piss in your barcode Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold Where did it come from and where did it go? It requires a fight, not tweeting from your phone Don't need a king, get him off the fucking throne If you ride with the thought, you've always got a home The virus you're scared of will come and it'll go The government knows this, don't get treated like a hoe Let's get into the show Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Liberty Lockdown. I have a very special guest with me today. His name is Joe Evans, and he is running for office in Idaho as a libertarian. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I'm running for office, uh, Congressional District 1 in the state of Idaho. Uh, filed back in March to run as congressional candidate, which was really sort of an extremely awesome experience, you know, uh, especially the way everything just changed. You know, ever since March when I originally filed, because, you know, you start with, ah, we're just going to go out and we're going to do the regular thing. We're going to push, uh, you know, the idea is we're going to teach libertarianism to uh, the community and get yeah. the word out. And then it's like, wait, wait, uh, hold on. The whole scenario just changed because the duopoly just screwed us two, three, four, five times in a row. And they're still trying to make everything go down. And it's like, um. Folks, are we paying attention to what's going on? Yeah. Uh, have you have you found a, a more open mind when, when talking to people, given the obvious loss of freedoms that we've experienced over the past seven months? Oh, yeah. The minds have opened up left and right, trying to make things happen as far as what was going on with, uh, well, I mean, literally everything. <laughs> um, you know, we got out and we got started with things and uh, people started going, but Hey, what about, uh, you know, how do you feel about the lockdowns? Where are you with the science? You know, what sort of things are going on, you know, as a libertarian, how would you have approached this particular thing? And you start stepping back and you go, well, for starters, we wouldn't have left everything to the crony capitalist organizations. You know, we would have opened it up to the free market and said, you know, look for your alternatives, look for your healthcare options, look for the other things that make things happen for you. Mm -hmm. And it's like, they start going, why are there only five organizations working on a vaccine right now? You know, aren't there like a hundred university labs across the United States right now that are capable of going in and doing their own independent studies and assessments on the vaccines that are available? You know, why are we so focused on an mRNA vaccine when the DNA vaccines have a proven success record? Why are we going, you know, and it's like people start thinking and it goes, wait, wait, something's not right here. Yeah. So we're seeing a lot of influence on things that are going down right now, some changes in attitudes and we're seeing a lot of things happen in a good way as far as being able to promote libertarianism, being able to promote free markets, being able to just promote the idea of making individual choices again here in the United States. And it's been amazing. Yeah, that's that's really, to me, the only silver lining of this unbelievable tyranny we've experienced uh, this year is that, you know, liberty if it, if it can't be appealing in this environment, it truly never will be. And I, I found much more common ground. Unfortunately, I've only found it with right wingers. I have not found it with the left. They have, they have seemed to embrace all of the fear mongering and I can't really 
open their eyes. I mean, I'm sure a handful have. Uh, I do know a few people that, you know, took the lockdown very seriously in the first few months. And then they started to like, you know, thank God for social media. They start to see people out living their lives, having fun. And it makes them question, should I be doing this? You know, is this, am I actually being fooled? And uh, it's, it's few and far between on the left that I've found that are opening their, their minds and starting to think a little bit more critically about these things. But um, I'm glad to hear that you're having some success. I, I actually wanted to ask you briefly about, you know, I, I tried to get on the ballot in California for city council. I had to get something like 750 uh, signatures and I ended up getting that many, but then after they verified them, I only had, I think 650 that were like verified voters in this area. So I didn't get on the, on the ballot. It was a, it was a hard lesson. Um, obviously I'm in a much more populated state. What, what was the process like for you to get on the ballot? Was it challenging? Did it cost much money? I, I would like to inspire some people out there since you've managed to get on the ballot so that they know what, you know, what they're up against. Uh, the thing with the ballot in the state of Idaho is it's really pretty easy to get onto it. Uh, for a congressman, we needed something like 500 signatures or we just needed to cough up $300 if our party wow. had ballot access. Okay. So like if you wanted to run as an independent, I would have had to have come up with 500 signatures from people in my district, or I could also do it as one of the partisan races as well. Mm -hmm. But when it comes down to it, I could step back and because the Libertarian Party has ballot access in the state of Idaho to run for Congress. It was $300, paperwork filed. I'm on the ballot in November. That's that's phenomenal. That That's so much easier than it is here. I was just trying to get on a city council seat, uh, and it, I think it was an uncontested race, and I still had to get 750 signatures. There was no financial you know, buyout option, which I would have gladly taken, given how much time and energy I spent getting those signatures that ended up not even getting me on the ballot. So uh, for those that are out there in states that are a little bit more open, I would encourage you guys to, you know, follow in Joe's footsteps and, and try and get on the ballot. We just, anytime there's a, an uncontested race in particular, I think it's a real tragedy not to give people that option. Oh, it is. It's a huge uh, issue. So one of the things we had initially here in the state of Idaho is we've had trouble with branding you know, um, large number of individuals have come into the state thinking they're libertarian when they're really not, you know, but they love the whole idea of liberty, liberty, liberty. Uh, you know, as long as I can do what I want and I can make you do what I want you to do too, that's liberty. <laughs> yeah, and right. A, a lot of us are going, uh, no, no, that, that's not quite the way that works. What, what specifically are they coming in trying to, you know, implement that, that strikes you as non-libertarian? I don't know that area very well. Uh, okay, Idaho has always had a problem with white nationalism and white supremacy. We've had the uh, Aryan Nations compound up in northern Idaho, up in Hayden Lake, uh, yeah. that existed for close to about 15, 20 years before uh, it was finally pushed out. Mm -hmm. You know, and that was when I was a kid. And, uh, but one of the things is, is right now that area represents a huge resurgence of people who are involved in, for lack of a better word, Christian nationalism. You know, they've moved into the area and they're going, you know, this is a Christian nation. You know, and if you don't believe in the one true God, you shouldn't be holding office. And it's like, wait, 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 that time out, guys, time out. <laughs> um, so we've started dealing with that, and which is fine. 
if they just want to go up there and create their own little Hopian, you know, covenant community, you know, and just do their own little thing up there, most of us would say, whatever, sure. you know, go do your thing. But the problem is, is these people have become politicians and they worked on rewriting Idaho's legislation and laws and imposing, you know, rather weird moral requirements on the population here in the state. And it's getting like, eh, folks, that, that really wasn't what Idaho was about. That wasn't what brought you here in the first place. So why are you trying to make it into something that, you know, not even the natives agree with? Yeah. Do these people consider themselves libertarian or, or is that, are they just like kind of right wing <laughs> nationalist folks? It, it's hard to say. They've been using the term liberty and libertarian for the past 10 years now. So okay. it's hard to say whether or not they actually consider themselves libertarian or whether or not they just consider themselves, uh, you know, that right wing Christian, you know, nationalist types. Yeah. Well, they don't consider themselves Christian nationalists, you know, because that's they are. <laughs> you listen to the rhetoric. That's right. who they are, you know, yeah. but they don't consider themselves, they don't think of themselves that way because they honestly believe that this is a Christian nation right. and that our laws and regulations should be based entirely on the Bible. Yeah, well, they're, they're not Christian nationalists because they think that they live in a Christian nation, which, you know, they kind of do, kind of don't. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't have any experience with any sort of like fringe um, white supremacist type entities, particularly in the libertarian community. Online, you know, every libertarian I interact with seems to be completely disinterested with identity politics and, and you know, has no affinity for these types of folks. Uh, I do agree with you that if they wanted to just go create their own little compound and, and do whatever they want within it, but not change the laws to reflect their ideology, I wouldn't have an issue with it. But if they are trying to run for office and then, you know, change immigration laws or whatever else, just to try and increase their chances of maintaining their stranglehold on the, you know, identity of the area. That's where yeah. we would have some conflict for sure. And it's one of the reasons why I got involved, particularly in the Libertarian Party, mm -hmm. because the problem with the nationalist is it's infected Idaho's Republican Party rather hard. So it's like if you want to actually run on a libertarian platform, you can't do it within the Republican Party in the state of Idaho. You actually got to step outside of the Republican Party and say, I believe in liberty. And the Libertarian Party in Idaho is the only party that's really endorsing it in a true libertarian fashion. Mm -hmm. So but well, that was one of the things is one of my big pushes. Now, originally I started in 19 years in the United States Army. I did uh, four tours in Afghanistan and Iraq, got out and went, you know, um, what we're doing over there is wrong. So I got involved in peace activism. You know, you step back and you go, well, what are the Democrats doing for peace? Crickets. Yeah. What no. are the Republicans doing for peace? Crickets. You know, who else is making things happen? And I'm looking around and, you know, Idaho's, believe it or not, we actually have a uh, party for socialization and liberation, PSL party here in Boise. And it's like, wait, okay, I, I, I get the peace activism, but, but what's with 
the whole MLM apologist thing. I, I'm, yeah. What, what is know. socialization? I don't, I don't I've never even heard of that term. Uh, PSL, well, it, it's it's basically a Marxist group. It's Marxist-Leninist. Okay. It's, it's your tankies. Yeah. So the PSL happens to be my local tankies. And, and they have that in Idaho? Yes. Wow. We got all of about 20 of them. Okay. Uh, <laughs> not, not too much of an issue. Well, I, I think it's interesting that, you know, nationalism has really caught a, a black eye in terms of um, branding, especially under the Trump regime. I, I don't consider myself a nationalist, but I think a lot of people are, and they just don't classify themselves as that because they think that it's, it's a negative, it has a negative connotation. I, I agree it should have a negative connotation, but a lot of people don't feel that way. And they don't, they don't really, they just don't apply the label to themselves because it has a negative connotation, but in truth, they are nationalists. So um, yeah. I did, I did want to use some of the uh, arguments that I know, cause I'm sure I have a few listeners out there that would classify themselves as nationalists. Um, you know, I want to use kind of a devil's advocate and, and see what your counter is to some of these topics. So, um, first off, I know I, I watched your video yesterday, uh, talking about, uh, Christian nationalism and, uh, I found some really compelling points, but I had some areas that I'm sure people would question. So, uh, here we go. I wanted to see, you know, in the situation where we have, um, like Minnesota is a good example where there's been such a huge immigration influx of Somalian refugees that they yes. now, they now have, you know, very Marxist politicians that have been put into power, which obviously is extremely counter to libertarianism. Um, I know there's the, the hard nationalists would be very concerned about Sharia law. I'm not so concerned about that. However, uh, because I hope our constitution will protect us from that, but I don't know. Um, so what, what would be your counter when someone says, well, we need to limit immigration because look at Minnesota, look at the, you know, Marxists that are now dictating some aspect of our government. Right, one of the reasons, and I love using Minnesota as a reference because Dearborn, uh, you know, had, or Dearborn, Michigan actually is one. You got Alana and uh, a couple others that are involved in that district there. And a lot of it has to do with the way the different states have handled the refugee programs across the United States. Uh, Idaho is one of those. We actually have been extremely successful. The two areas that we have in Idaho for the refugee relocation programs are some of the most promising, most successful refugee relocation programs in the United States. Reason why is because when we set things up, we actually bring the refugees in. We spread them out among the communities here in the Treasure Valley and back over in Pocatello so that they can work, they can become part of the community, they become involved in the churches. And believe it or not, we got four mosques here in Boise. Yeah, super red state, we actually got four mosques. But they become part of the community and they start integrating and they become Americans as a result. You see the young kids learning, you know, four or five different languages. They're translating for the parents with the other people in the apartment complexes. You know, it's really amazing to watch the diversity as we teach them to become American. We adopt their culture, you know, they invite us in for dinner, you know, we have meals together. Where we run into the problem in Dearborn is Michigan decided to create a slum. 
Yeah, that's what they did. They took all of the Somali refugees that the federal government gave them money for and said, here's your five square miles. Mm -hmm. All the Somali refugees are going to live in these five square miles. Now, when you do that, you concentrate all of the Somalis so they don't become Americanized. They don't start the assimilation process. I use assimilation more loosely than a lot of nationalists do. Mm-hmm. You know, but they don't start becoming Americanized. All they do is they bring their Somali culture over and they're locked in the Somali culture, complete with the criminal element that came over with them. So they can't separate themselves from the criminal element. So you got this continuing indoctrination of Somali culture, doesn't give them a chance to break free from it. Criminal elements indoctrinated, they can't trust the police, the community won't rat out the criminal element criminal element continues to exploit the community and you end up with situations where the community comes in and says it's time to implement Sharia law and everybody outside of the community is going no it's not (laughs) but the thing is is they never gave that community an opportunity to assimilate into America right they just said here you go here's your five square miles go do what you're going to do and is when you talk about Idaho's, uh, you know, immigration policies, how is it that you guys managed to get them to, you know, locate and kind of intersperse within the existing community so that they can assimilate? Is it is it a top down approach, or is it just that these people are just given permission and they they get a place to live wherever they so choose? Uh, it's a combination of things, but one of the things we had that we had a real advantage of here in Idaho is, of course, Idaho's LDS. Uh, mm-hmm. Mormons, our kids pick up, they go all over the world, they learn another language, they go out and teach uh, in other countries. We have the Relief Society, the young women in there will go and do relief projects, farm projects in other countries. So we already have this sort of welcoming atmosphere. And our refugee committee here, uh, International Refugee Commission, something like that did a pretty good job of working with the different low-income housing apartment complexes. And rather than just picking one and sending everybody to it, they moved them around. They created the diversity and there were communities, there were churches and there were uh, arrangements being able to bring those people in. So it was more of an organic thing rather than an intentional thing. Well, it seems to me that the, what you're describing is kind of the the classical um, cultural structure by which we did adapt or, or allow you know immigrants to adapt and adopt some of our our ideologies as they arrived. Um, but then again, you know, in New York, it was very very common to see immigrant. Um, enclaves, I guess you would call it, where it'd be like, okay, you got the Italians here, you got the Jews here, you got the Irish here. Um, But that was the boroughs. Right, right. You know, they literally created a borough, stuck the new wave of immigrants in it, you know, and then that was the slum, you know, the borough for that particular group. Then the next wave came in from another location and boom, you know, next thing you got the new immigrants were in the new borough and you ended up with New York self-segregating. 
Yes, exactly. You know, just as the process of immigrants came in and people came, got off the ship and they went to the same area, built their homes, and that was it. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. As you started I, the westward migration, they started integrating more and more. Right. And and each generation integrate, integrates more. That's that's yeah. kind of a given. I think I think the biggest issue and the reason that you're getting such an uptick in nationalism, particularly like the vir- virulent kind that that can be dangerous, is that back then there wasn't such a sa- safety net. There wasn't so much welfare. So the people that were fleeing were truly fleeing, you know, from horrendous places, and they they were looking for opportunity. They weren't looking for a handout per se. So when they got here, they were kind of forced, and and not 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 even forced, but but willingly adapted and adopted some of our ideology when it comes to being a self starter, being an entrepreneur, things like that. That has really been diminished because we have such, uh, you know, hefty welfare programs. So what, I mean. I just, I guess, I, I sympathize with the nationalists in that regard. In, in that, you know, I do, I do get concerned about modern immigrants that are coming over because it seems as if they have less of the inclination to uh, assimilate and and stand on their own two feet. Uh, not all, uh, certainly, I wouldn't say that. I think I'm tremendously pro-immigrant. I'm born and raised in San Diego. I'm surrounded by immigrants. However, I yeah. do think that there is the potential for negatives when you have such a huge welfare uh, operation. Oh, there is, uh, as far as the whole thing goes with a welfare program. But most of our immigrants that actually come through the area, you know, they came here to work. They came here to participate. They came here to become. A lot of them actually bring their own wealth with them. Sure. So like they don't show up. They don't initially get on the welfare program. Uh, nonprofit organizations like the International Refugee Commission help supplement provide guidance, walk them through the system, help them in a lot of cases, set up their own small businesses. And you go for a drive around Boise here, we got something like about 15 different, uh, you know, international grocery stores. You know, they're the small little boutique deli things. You got a halal deli, you got, a, you know, the Afghan restaurants, sure. you know, high restaurants. Um, yeah, but the way we've done the immigration here goes clear back to Clinton. You know, we got a, uh, uh, keep drawing a blank on this, but we have a uh, mosque from uh, uh, Macedonia. Remember when we were involved in Macedonia and we were dealing with the uh, Christians versus the Islams there? Yep. Um we actually got a mosque that originates from those initial refugees from that conflict. You know, yeah. Here in Boise, that's, you know. that's incredible. Yeah. I, I, I actually love, you know, some of the cultural shifts that, that occur from immigration. So I, please don't take any of my devil's <laughs> advocacy as, as saying, uh, you know, I'm actually against it. What, what I am concerned about is the trend in this country towards Marxism and the fact that, you know, you have some people coming over who are starting from scratch and if they have the option between, you know, fighting tooth and nail to get up off the ground or they can get a handout, oftentimes they're going to take that handout. And I don't know how, given the, the welfare programs that exist, we managed, you know, maybe not in Idaho, maybe you don't have such an issue, but in some of the, the bluer states like California, New York, oh, right. uh, Minneapolis, you know, all these, all these different areas that have you know, we, we even had bailouts, um, COVID 
you know, stimulus for illegal immigrants in California. It's, it's a really, it's a next level type deal. Like I, things that I never thought I'd, I'd even potentially see in my lifetime are happening and I'm not even that old yet. So uh, I don't know how we stem the tide of the Marxist ideology in this country while having open borders. You know, it seems like you have to address at least one aspect of this before it gets completely out of hand. How, how would you go about, you know, remedying some of this so that we don't end up, you know, losing what makes America, America by being an open America? <laughs> ah, and that's a real interesting situation because, you know, we start talking about America as being a capitalist nation. And we start talking about other things about what is America. And a lot of us have this idealistic view of what America is or what America should be. Let, let's go with that, with what America should be. Oh, we, we, all, we all have an idealistic view of that, for sure. Right? <laughs> you know, we want America to be about free markets. We want America to be about freedom. We want America to be about choice. You know, we want America to be that home where we can survive by our own wits and make those uh, economic and class mobility options happen. Yep. You know, but then you actually step back and you take a look and go, uh, you know, you know, folks, uh, the United States, it's, it's been a socialist country for over a hundred years. You know, sure. I mean, no kidding. It has been a Marxist nation for over a hundred years. Yep, you know, Eugene Debs, 1918, ran for president. You know, the Republican Party shifted towards the unions and support of labor, which is cool. Mm -hmm. Except they did it with the government. Right. You know, it wasn't a local choice thing. It was the government implemented the plan. Right. And which is where the problem arises. Exactly. That's where the problem started. You know, and then here we go another... 10 years later, okay, so 1918, so another 15 years later, Kynes enters the scene and he comes out with this central planning committee. You know, and now we have a committee sitting in Washington, D.C. that's not only made all of these labor laws the law, you know, we now have a central planning committee that's allocating resources. It's like Ma Bell, you get money. Tennessee Valley Authority, you get money. You know, it just starts parceling out the resources. Sure. Now, it worked initially because of how bad things were at the time. Or maybe it didn't, depending on how you look at FDR and what he, uh, man, you know, some people say they, because of what he did, the Great Depression lasted longer than it should have. You know, so we go through that whole process. And then around 1970, Nixon comes along and we already have the socialism. We already have the Central Planning Committee. We already have the strong unions that everybody's really upset with because unions have become nationalized and they become corrupt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And then 1970 comes along. And now not only do we have the Eugene Debs history and kind central planning committee, now we introduce modern monetary theory. Right. Coming off the... Uh, right. So it's like now everything's top down. Reason why is because the treasury can print money hand over fist. You know, the money's coming from the top, top decides who gets the money, and then it just filters on down. And except anybody who pays attention to Austrian economics knows that money does not trickle down. 
It always goes straight back up to the top. So we need to step back and realize, you know, America's always been socialist. Well, not always, but a hundred years. <laughs> well, for a hundred years. Yeah, yeah. You know, so how do we turn around and reverse that and decentralize the power structure so that we can have that freedom back in the communities that we always talk about? You know, Marxists like to talk about, you know, your community. It's the stateless, moneyless uh, society. Mm -hmm. Well, the thing is, is it's never going to be moneyless. So let's go ahead and just do away with that BS right now. Uh, because people are always going to want some way to acknowledge the effort that they put into work, some way of measuring their performance, measuring their work. Right. And they so want to be able to exchange goods. Yeah. Yeah. The exchange of goods. There's always going to be some way of money, some form of exchange that goes in with that. And that's where you start wandering in. Okay, well, if there's got to be money, how far over to the capitalism side do we want to go? You know, and that's one of the things I, I fall right down the middle. You know, Pradhonian, mutualist, you know, I believe in free markets. You know, however you want to organize the free markets, whether you want to do it with Bitcoin, whether you want to do it with currency, whether you want to trade gold and metals, in exchange for goods or whether or not you just want to do the exchange of goods like a good agorist does, mm -hmm. you know, you can step back and the free market self-maintains and self-manages. Mm -hmm. Whereas one of the problems we've gotten with the, the way we've moved to crony capitalism, rogue capitalism, uh, state capitalism is it's pure consumption. You know, growth for growth's sake, which we all know is the philosophy of cancer. It's unsustainable. So how do we take that from the crony capitalism when we shift it back to the free markets and say, you know what? I only need what I need. I don't need any more than that. Well, that's, that's a, a sociological shift. That's a cultural shift. Right. Yeah. Right. And that's one of the problems that we start getting into is, is right now, America loves to consume. It loves to consume, consume, consume. So how do we step back out in that and say, you know what? We've created uh, planned obsolescence mm -hmm. in most of our stuff, right? Sure. How long is the laptop you're using right now going to last? Four years. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Okay, it's, it's planned to be obsolete in two. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you may go ahead and stretch it out another two years. <laughs> depends on how frugal I'm being, but yeah. Right, depends on how frugal you're being. But it's designed, you know, never mind the fact that it'll actually work for the next 10 years doing the very basic functions that you need. Sure. You want to go through the upgrade because you want you know you want to play your music just a little bit clearer. <laughs> you know, or, or you may want an extra 10 megabytes, you know, or... 10 gigs on your hard drive or something. Yeah. Yeah. Got to, got to increase the, uh, the video card so we can have some uh, better video uh, versions of the show. Right. You yeah. Know, clean it up, make it look good. But yeah, you know, so you start looking at, do you really need it or do you just want it? Mm -hmm. And how much do you actually need? And you start looking at that and you go, the free market, 
you know, there's not this cultural pounding that's saying you need to keep up with the Jones or you need to keep up with the Smiths. You know, it's like, I'm happy with my four walls and my bed and my couch, you know, maybe the nice view of the ocean. You know, I don't need a lot more than that. I don't need to go buy, you know, the latest big screen TV, you know, every 12 months. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I tend to agree with you. I'm actually pretty much a minimalist myself. I, I, drive a much older car than I need to. My my house is far nicer than I probably deserve. But um, other than that, you know, I basically only invest in appreciating assets or I, I try to. Um, but that's just because of my, you know, financial mindset. I just can't bring myself to buy depreciating assets in mass. Um, however, I think that, you know, we probably have a better chance of getting a libertarian in office than we do of convincing society that, uh, you know, they're, their profligate spending and their their desire for the latest gizmo is unnecessary. Like how 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 would you go about actually getting people to have this enlightenment? Um, or is it just a, a natural evolution that comes when the the Marxist system fails and everyone has to kind of regroup and reevaluate their lives? Bingo. Okay. Uh, no, it, it's natural evolution. Once everybody, everything the system collapses in on itself and you have to stop and think, okay, well, uh, how did we get to this point? Uh, what do we need to change about who we are and the way we think and how do we move forward from it? Yeah. That's one of those problems. The worst of the shift actually started back in about the 1970s. Okay. And ah, you love the conspiracy theories ideas and you've talked to a couple of people. So collapse of the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talk about that. You know, is it reality? Is it just conspiracy? Can it actually happen? And if it does happen, what does it look like? Okay. Now, I did four tours in Afghanistan or three in Afghanistan, one in Iraq. I got an opportunity to see what the U.S. military was doing there and what our imperialist imperialism. Yes. Uh, what, what it looks like firsthand. Yeah. Uh, When, when did you get out? Uh, I got out in 2013. Okay. So not, not too long ago. No, not too long ago. So about six years ago, it was still under Obama at the time. We were still doing the imperialism thing. We were doing nation building. We were giving money to corrupt warlords. We were supporting, uh, rather, uh, rude cultural behavior patterns, which shouldn't exist anywhere. Um, All because those warlords, despite their crimes against humanity, were perfectly willing to do anything we told them to do. Yeah. Um, And that was one of the things is the disillusionment with what was going on. And then you step back. And one of the things I posted here recently, you know, by the rockets, red glare, the bombs bursting in air, we, set, we knew through the night that our flag was still there, flying over 150 nations around the world right now. <laughs> uh, you know, it's great to be the oppressor, which is what we are right now. You know, we, are the, new, we are the new Roman Empire. We are the new British Empire. You know, uh, the sun never sets on a U.S. service member. Yeah. Sadly. You know? <laughs> but, but that's where we're at right now. So the thing is, and I was listening to uh, your conversation with Marilyn for Peace the other day. Uh, MD for peace. Yeah, he's, he's got some awesome ideas, huh? 
He does. He does. But one of the things that we start to take a look at is, is our imperialism, our military adventurism is supporting our lifestyle here in the United States. Yeah, Straight no up. Our economy is so robust and our MMT, our modern monetary theory continues to exist 50 years later after we instituted it because we got 11 carrier groups pointed at every other nation on the planet. We literally say, this is how much we think our money should be worth. Mm-hmm. Do you agree? <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you want to live? <laughs> exactly. You know, but the thing is, is we're running out of that ability. You know, uh, China just came out with their own currency, their own reserve currency. They no longer need the U.S. reserve currency to support them. You know, and as much as we like to complain about China's manipulation of the value of the yen or whatever it is they use. Uh, uh, yuan. Yuan. Yeah, yuan. Uh, it absolutely does not compare in any way to the way we've manipulated our own currency value. Oh, for we've, sure. We've been, hold, we've been holding the rest of the world hostage. Yeah, like literally at the barrel of a gun or a, a, ta- a <laughs> yeah. tanker. I, I, I totally agree. I, I, I think it's really interesting when people talk about, um, you know, the, the risk of our empire collapsing being a conspiracy theory. It's like, this is a historical fact. Like you look at any empire that tries to dominate the globe, eventually they fall. And, you know, our, our experiment with fiat currency and doing it on a scale that's never been done before might allow us to do it longer than some of these other countries attempted to and, and ultimately failed. But I think our failure is inevitable um, without, you know, uh, basically a revolution in the meantime. But either way, it results in the government collapsing. So I, I don't see yeah. it as a conspiracy theory. I just see it as like, I'm not clear on how long this charade can last. Do you have any... Um, any concept of how long you think this might go on before we actually deal with a reset? The second we have a Congress that repeals the authorization of use of military force from 2001 that allows us to put troops in 150 nations. That, that just gave me chills. Any oversight. That just gave me chills. I know exactly where you're going. Keep going. <laughs> well, reason why is because the second that is repealed, all the troops come home. Mm-hmm. Second, the troops come home. We don't have a gun to point at every other nation in the world anymore. We literally have to declare a constitutional war right. to justify the imperialism that we've been exercising for the past 20 years. Wow. So you think it's that simple? You think that we would collapse right after that? Uh, well, yeah, because we no longer have that gun pointed at Russia. We no longer have that gun pointed at China or any of the other nations that we're currently occupying. You know, they can literally say, you know, we don't need you. Right. Our reserve you know? currency status is immediately gone after that. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and you start looking at communities, you know, we no longer have occupying forces in Africa. Okay. China sort of stepped up in that zone. Yep. But like Maryland for Peace was talking as far as the individual communities being able to step outside of each other and do their own trading, you know, without asking America for permission to trade with each other. You know, they'll be able to sit down and say, okay, we we can find a balance in currency so we don't have to go through the American currency system anymore or the American banking system or the International Monetary Fund. Right. 
you know, they'll actually be able to create their own little mini Ancapistans where they do their individual community trading. They can go across borders and actually talk to each other without running through some Eurocentric ideology, you know, as far as how the world should be organized. You know, they're no longer dependent upon the new world order. The beautiful thing is, is we put enough technology out in the world today that open source liberty, you know, is literally at our fingertips. Mm-hmm. You know, we do online gaming with every nation in the world right now. Yeah. You know, we got online games, you know, you got Russians, you know, in your local gaming alliance. <laughs> you know, yeah. everybody's on WoW and you got Russians and you got Koreans and you got Americans and you got somebody from Brazil in there, you know, and they're all chatting away as they're doing the horde rush, you know, <laughs> on WoW. And it's like, wait, wait this is an international coalition. It is. Yeah. You know, and in some cases they've actually created their own economy based off of wow currency, like in Brazil, you know, true. Uh, fiat currency in some of the other locations where they've tried to replicate what we've done in America, you know, it failed massively because it didn't have the American military backing their fiat currency. Right. Yeah. You know, so you end up with a hyperinflation while they're trying to keep ahead of it. And they realize, you know what? I can go on WoW and mine coins. And right now in some country in the world, that currency is more stable. That, that is so crazy. Yeah, I, I, I mean, yeah. it's it's kind of a beautiful thing. It really is a beautiful thing, actually. But um, it's it's arising from a really sick thing, which is kind of our global, global hegemonic uh, station. So I guess your perspective would be that there is no chance that they, that they repeal the, I think it's the UAMF. Um, hey, UMF soon. authorization use of military force. Yeah. No, not with the Democrats and Republicans in office right now. Reason why is because every one of them gets sat down and they get handed the delivery. You know, they get the national security speech and they say, you know, the second we bring our troops home, uh, our current force projection, mm-hmm. that ability to point the gun at every other nation in the world uh, goes away reason why is because we no longer have those bases in korea or in japan or germany that say you know what you guys owe us right you know the second that disappears you know and we start bringing those troops home and we start closing down those bases overseas you know our ability to continue to intimidate and bully the other nations into accepting the standard of currency that we want them to goes away yeah well if you look at the the um, the true impetus for many of the wars that we've been in over the past 20 years, it was oftentimes the leader of that country basically telling us to shove it and starting to trade in rubles or the yuan or some other currency. And then all of a sudden uh, they ended up in the street being sodomized by their people. And it's like, yeah, I, you know, yeah. call me a call me a conspiracy well, theorist if you want somebody, but yes. <laughs> yeah, oh, exactly. Maybe the CIA, but uh, you know, call me a conspiracy theorist, but you know, if A always equals B, I'm going to start to think that maybe the they are correlated in some way. And it seems as if any time a country st- tries to stop using the U.S. dollar, particularly for the trade of oil, they end up in our sights. And I don't think that's a coincidence. Um, it sounds as if you don't either. Did you go into the military with the libertarian leanings or did you just come out with it? I came out with it. Uh, and I'll level with you. I came out of the military with even slightly Marxist leanings. Sure. You know, because it's like I came out 
I was broke. I was destitute. I had to recreate myself, you know, go back to college, work through the system, you know, taking the loans, you know, basically go back to the bottom because I was paying child support. I was divorced. You know, I had nothing. Mm -hmm. So I had to start going back through the process of rebuilding myself. And I'm looking at things and going, you know what? The system's broke. Right. You know, at 45 years old, 46 years old, coming out of the military with a skill that I can't go back to because I'm morally opposed to it. And being able to convert that skill to a skill set I can use in the civilian world in a way I can appreciate. You know, you start going, dude, the system's so broke. Yeah. You know, how... And you start looking at the Marxists and go, burn it down, burn it down. Right. You I got a lot of empathy for that. A lot of empathy for that right now. <laughs> so do I. Yeah. And I still do for the record. I just, I, I think there's something beautiful about that actually. So I want to commend you, uh, you know, having, having the, the skill set that I know you can profit off of uh, deeply if you were to go into the private security type field and choosing not to on a moral basis and then having to completely reformulate your economic model for success in your life. It's a, it's a noble thing that you did and i'm 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 glad That's you did still it. in process i haven't done it yet it's, well i know it's, i know but you know, I'm, tr- I'm trying to encourage you to keep on that path i know it's <laughs> it'd be a lot easier just to go join blackwater or whatever but uh you know fight well, that it, it's one of those i got a friend uh she's got some property here actually in the city limits got about three and a half acres and she's allowed me to go in and set up you know a garden Three and a half acres, it's a decent sized garden, you know, yeah. once, you, once you start looking at things, especially That's a considering. Farm. <laughs> well, it is a farm, literally, it is a farm uh, when you start looking at the scale. And we've been looking at some options as far as uh, rehabilitative agriculture, uh, being able to self maintain, you know, set up the hydro pump off of the irrigation so it can generate power off of the natural flow that the city creates by running the canals through the area. Yeah. And looking at the options for that while being within city limits you know three areas in an or three acres inside of an effective urban zone mm-hmm. where you can farm you know where it hasn't been turned into a park you can you own it so you can literally farm it yeah is practically unheard of yeah you know, so it's close. I'm able to go out. I'm able to practice a craft that is a sustainable craft. You know, one that will continue to support, well, maybe not support, support. You know, in today's economy, you still need something a little bit more than the farm, <laughs> you know, in order to keep you afloat. You, 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 may, you may not long term, bro, because uh, <laughs> if, if we have food shortages, like uh, some of us have been predicting, that farm may become a gold mine here soon. I hope not. Obviously. Well, literally, you know, it's, well, it's opportunity cost. Right. You know, I can go out, I can do uh, computer software or well, cloud engineering, working with, uh, you know, computer maintenance programs, you know, earning somewhere between 35, 40, $45 an hour right now. You know, uh, or I can go out and I can, you know, spend that 40 hours a week working on the farm and recoup what two hours of work would allow me to go to the grocery store and pick up right you know so you you start looking at the opportunity costs and you go okay well 
from one perspective, it's worth it to learn the skill. Right. Yeah, it's worth it to practice the skill. Yeah, even if you're losing the opportunity cost, you still have the skill. So yeah. if things really do, do do go south, right, and we have that EMP that comes here and wipes out all of those systems that I developed my career on, <laughs> you know, I can always resort back to well, it, at least I know how to grow fruit. Yeah, well, my my skill set is uh, is podcasting and finance, so I will be. Uh, worthless if an EMP hits. <laughs> I, I have a I have a decent amount of land, but I'll have to learn rapidly how to farm if if shit really hits the fan. Um, well, so, oh, for starters, if you listen to Bloomberg, don't, <laughs> because they're significantly more involved in it than digging a hole and putting a seed in. <laughs> yes, yeah, for sure, for sure, that's true. Well, I I actually had a house in Escondido, which is kind of a rural part of San Diego. And I had nice. 1.8 acres of land and I, I, I tried gardening and I was extremely successful. So successful, I found out that I had actually planted on my leech lines for my fucking, for my uh, septic system. So I was getting food from my own shit water. Very cool. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best, man. That's the best. <laughs> Grass is always greener over the septic tank. Dude, it's unbelievable. I couldn't believe how fast my squash were growing. And then my my gardener comes over and he's like, he's like, your food's in the shit. Like you can't eat this. And I was like, oh man, I can't believe that was my only experience gardening. So <laughs> natural. Well, well, okay. Now, now the thing is, uh, it's the whole humanure thing. You know, the leech lines, the septic tanks. You know, you actually need to run that through a process. Right. Before you can actually use it as fertilizer. Yeah, there was no process. <laughs> <laughs> the process was me making myself sick. Uh, so <laughs> couldn't couldn't exactly eat that. That's my only gardening experience. So oh. I'm going to have to start from scratch. But it makes for a funny story. It does. It does. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, so, so what do you think in terms of timeline? I mean, obviously, you have, you, you'll now have multiple skill sets that will be useful in the apocalypse. Uh, do you think that they will come in use in your lifetime? Or do you think that we, we have some level of reprieve that gives us, uh, you know, 50 years of, you know, quasi peace? I, I really don't know. All right. I, I, See, that's the thing is, is it depends at where we are at the state of empire. Except the problem is the empire has already come home. Mm -hmm. You know, we have troops in 150 nations around the world. We have militarized our law enforcement here at home. Yeah, so the war literally has come back to America. We brought it back, you know, whether it was through the way we militarized the police, the way we've decided to take soldiers and convert them into law enforcement officers. You know, the law enforcement in the United States is the standing army that the founding fathers warned us about. Yeah. Yeah, so this is that application of force, application of violence against their own citizens. So where are we in the whole lineup of things? Now, I was reading earlier, we were talking about, you know, Fahrenheit 451 and uh, Animal Farm and a number of these other, you know, documents that were written like, you know, 50, 70 years ago. And it's like, they all these authors like were satirists. Okay. <laughs> yeah, this was right. satire that they were writing. You know, they literally took the situation at hand and created hyperbole 
you know, to the extreme and said, this is what's going to happen. So they weren't telling the future yet. Somehow (laughs) they knew it was going to happen because now we're at that point where what was just hyperbole 50 years ago is now reality because we've continued to build on that technology. We've continued to build on the state, on the surveillance, on the rhetoric, you know, the mind control through our public education systems, you know, that has made us into the docile sheep. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, they, they, back, wrote, they wrote a documentary on accident. They did, you know, and, but literally it, it was by accident. Mm-hmm. You know, they were making a statement about how things were at the time they wrote the books. Right. You know, and somewhere, someone along the line decided that's a great blueprint. And or, here we are. Yeah. Either that or it's the natural progression of, of uh, those systems. But, uh, you know, if you've watched Black Mirror on Netflix, it seems as if you know 1984 is being rewritten in these Black Mirror episodes, and and basically any of the prognostications they're making seem extremely probable in in my lifetime. So it's it's nerve wracking. Well, here's the thing, and we actually have historical precedents that we can go back and look at. Okay, you take a look at the French Revolution. You take a look at some of the other revolution. I mean, not the American Revolution because that was. Yeah, that was what it was. Yeah, Bolshevik but in a lot of the, would be a good example too. Yeah, a lot of the other revolutions that have occurred over the years, you can go back and you trace exactly at what point you saw the revolution occur. You know, it was at that specific level of taxation. It was, you know, some other event that was going on. There was something that created, and we are literally at that point right now. Mm-hmm. As far as taxation of the public goes, uh, the way that we step outside and we look at uh, the exploitation of our foreign nations, our imperialist, where we go out and we make people work for $2 an hour in foreign nations in order to provide goods for us back here in the homeland. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've reached that point and it is well within the possibility of happening in the next 10 years. Yeah. So the question is, is do we install people in office that are capable of a controlled collapse or do we continue to install people in office that are accelerationists and are just willing to let it explode in and of itself? Sure. So it's a tough question. It is. And that's one of those things where you start looking at individuals, you know, you step back, you take a look at 2016 and what was going on there. Okay. Bernie wouldn't have been the savior we all wanted him to be, expected him to be, because he was still dependent upon Keynesian theory, modern monetary theory in order to make his plan work. Yeah. And And, and he's played ball with the, you know, yeah, left for so long that I'm sure he would have been dragged into whatever wars that they wanted, most likely. <laughs> the humanitarian wars. Yes, exactly. There, there's no such thing as a humanitarian war. Uh, that That's a lie, and it's time we recognize that. Uh, you know, uh, it is what it is. Yep. Yeah, but when we start stepping back and we go, okay, we were looking at 
the final came down to Trump versus Hillary. And you're going, well, um, while, Hillary, while Hillary was Secretary of State, we entered five brand new wars under Obama. Yep. Okay. Um, Hillary laughed while Gaddafi, you know, said his last words on somebody's cell phone video. Yep. You know, and it's, you step back. We, we, and, we came, we came, we saw he died. <laughs> yes. Yeah, 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 exactly. You know, and you realize, well, if you want a peace candidate, you don't want Hillary. Yeah. You know, she was fully willing to continue to take the authorization use of military force to where it is right now, 150 nations. So it's like an awful lot of people were looking, okay, well, if I got to choose a candidate and it's between the two and I don't want war, I better go with Trump. Mm -hmm. Now I voted Jill Stein because at the time that was my direction as far as peace activism went. Sure. Yeah. Jill Stein, you know, she actually taught the peace message. She preached it more than Gary did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which I think was a shame that Gary, you know, his foreign policy is what's Aleppo. Um, I know. It's pretty embarrassing. Well, no, but it's the perfect libertarian answer. <laughs> oh, because it yeah, is. I got you. It's like, I don't care what's going on in some other country. Yeah, I'm going to get us out of there. Who cares what the capital of Syria is? Right, exactly. You know, it's the perfect, it's the libertarian, but it looked bad. Yes. Because the guy was running for national office, you know. But he never really got on to the peace message the way that Jill Stein did, you know, with the Green Party and all that. But you step back and you start going, okay, well, how do we go ahead and deal with that? So we ended up with Trump, and a lot of that had nothing to do with our imperialism. A lot of that just had to do with the fact that more people hated Hillary than, you know, knew Trump. Yep. 100%. So here we are, and we're in another campaign. It's 2020, and we're looking at it. And it's still not a question of which candidate do you like more. It's which candidate do you hate more. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. I hate them both pretty equally. <laughs> I mean, the most, of, most of us do. It's just like you, you got to pick one. Yep. You know, which again goes feeds back into the libertarian and the third party candidates right now because a lot of people are looking at it and going, you know what, they're equally bad. Yeah. Is there a third option? Oh, yes, there is a third option. You know, let's take a look at it. Joe Jorgensen's spiking in Google Trends right now for searches. You know, right along with how can I change my vote? <laughs> a lot well, of Democrats and Republicans right now going, uh, Maybe I shouldn't have voted early. <laughs> yeah, well, and and I agree. I I just hope that, I, I mean, I hope that Jorgensen's campaign does better than I expect, but I still think it's unlikely that they get the 5%. I, I really do think that, you know, regardless of my opinion on who to vote for, I, I, it's irrelevant. It's one vote, who cares? But um, I do think that there is a question as to, you know, what is your priority? Because for me, Either way, the empire collapses. It's like, do you want to destroy the rest of the world with the empire collapsing, in which case you go Biden, or do you want our fiscal situation to get so dire that our economy collapses, in which case you go Trump? Because either way, either way, it, it results in debt and deficit and death. But you know, what's the more moral answer? And for me, Joe Biden being 
such a war hawk and having written the 1994 crime bill, um, being responsible for so much of what ails us over his 50 years, he's just, he's a non-starter for me personally. Well, and that's one of the other things, 1994 crime bill, you know, and Kamala Harris's commitment to the 1994 crime bill, you know, both of them made their careers off of that. Exactly. So how do you step back and you say, I want the person who is willing to put 5% of America's adults in prison to be the president. <laughs> during during the Black Lives Matter moment. Like, it's unbelievable. Right. You know, if, if they were willing to put 5% of the American population in prison before they were president. Yeah. You know, what's to stop them from taking the velvet glove off of their little iron fist, you know, and finish drilling at home? You know, we've already militarized the police force. We've spent more money on them. Uh, this is one of those things that's dangerous because Trump went in and actually reauthorized um, civil asset forfeiture. Yep. You know, so while Obama had gone in and stopped the cops from stealing from us, you know, Trump went back in and said, no, nah, thin blue line can steal all they want. Did Obama stop that? I didn't know that. Uh, I don't think he directly stopped it as much as he just authorized some things that slowed it down. Okay. And it wasn't so much Obama as one of his uh, Department of Justice heads. Okay. And that may be one of those things is it probably wasn't Trump. It was probably Bill Barr. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's no, a very Bill Barr thing to do. No, no matter no matter who you elect, you always get John McCain. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, part of the problem is, is we got Bill Barr back, which <laughs> doesn't help things. No. You know, and that's one of those things that confuses me is literally we got a bunch of. <sighs> okay. This is a Bill Barr issue. The reason why is because Bill Barr worked for Bush Jr. Okay, he was in the final stages of the Bush administration. He came in, he was Department of Justice head. And this is another complication with Biden because Biden was the Senate Judiciary Committee chair. So literally if Barr screwed up, Biden was the one who was supposed to be responsible for chastising him. Let me guess, that didn't happen. Well, of course it didn't happen. The <laughs> uh, reason why is because the Department of Justice that Bill Barr created, that Janet Reno inherited, <laughs> that screwed over Waco, right? which Joe Biden was still Senate Judiciary Committee for that fiasco too. Damn, he was in power that long. That's crazy. Yeah, he's been in power that long. But the thing is, is Bill Barr, who was handpicked by Trump to be the Department of Justice head, was the guy who authorized the Ruby Ridge operation here in the state of Idaho. Oh, my God. Yeah, we got people in Idaho residents saying, yeah. It's like, no, dude. Dude, the yeah. one greatest violation against an Idaho resident ever committed by the federal government, by that man in particular. Yep. And you're cheering the guy who reappointed him to do exactly the same thing. Because that's what he's done. He's already done it. People have short memories, man. They do. They really do. Wow. Well, this has been a great talk. I, I wanted to uh, give you an opportunity to just let anybody know how to find you on social and uh, if they're in your area to give you a vote. 
Hey, uh, I'm Joe Evans, Idaho Congressional District 1. You can find me on my webpage, Idaho Joe for Congress. It's the number four, fourcongress.org. It's my webpage. You can find me on Twitter, ID Joe, uh, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, I mean, literally just about anywhere. If you just go ahead and do the Google search, I like Google search. You can do the Google search because that bumps up my numbers on uh, Google Trends too. There you go. Uh, I'll, I'll Google you right now. <laughs> but yeah, absolutely. Um, and right now we're already looking at moving forward. We just got the uh, brand new Idaho Medical Marijuana Initiative that we just filed here recently. It's going to be ready to start collecting signatures here. So win or lose, you know, I'm still going to be working on getting medical marijuana as well as support for bring our troops home peace activism at every step of the way yeah so awesome it's well, not over yeah no that's great I, I hope you have some success with it man and his uh, twitter handle is at id joe number four congress and uh really appreciate you coming on and i will uh tag you when i put this out so that you guys can can follow him more easily um so thank you joe it's been a blast. Thank you. And definitely kudos to Liberty Lockdown and everything you guys are doing. Spread the word, you know, liberty, freedom, life, justice, or peace. yeah, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yes. And some what peace. we're all about, right? Peace makes it in there. <laughs> it does. All right, brother. I'll talk to you soon, right? Talk to you soon. See you. This episode is brought to you by my good buddy over at FritzCast. FritzCast Podcast. Go check him out. Here's a clip so you can see what he's all about. Hey everybody, it's your old pal Fritz and I'm Fritz, uh, Fritz, Fritz. Oh god, what what buddy, listen what? Listen, you know that you're Fritz. Other people might know that you're Fritz, but these people might never even heard of you before. Bernie Sanders, everybody. Sometimes a frequent guest on god, the show. They, they don't they know who I am. They know who I am from my voice, they know who I am. Anyway, let's just lay it out there. Fritz cast, right? He's kind of libertarian, he's independent, he's really nutty, uh, he's against everything that I stand well, for. Well, that's not wholly true now, is it, old Bernard? Oh, well, you, you tell me. I know what a libertarian is. You tell me what a libertarian is. Well, I'm glad you asked. See, I'm an independent podcast with a libertarian lean, because I don't think that the government has to be the answer for everything, especially not the federal government, which has its hand in... Well, way too many things, if you ask me. I mean, it's kind of hard to manage that for 330 million people. How much Coke, brother, buddy, do you get? Not a dime. FritzCast. You can join me at fritzcast.webnode.com, on Twitter at FritzQS, and Facebook.com slash TheFritzCast. Episodes every week on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, literally any podcast catcher you can think of. Join the FritzCast revolution.